This is Psychic Warfare. Welcome back, my friends, to Psychic Warfare, the podcast where spirituality and philosophy collide with heavy metal and rock and roll. We are back after a quick little hiatus that I took here, and I am your host, Chris Keelick. Thank you so much for joining me once again on another journey into the lives and minds of the most iconic musicians, and in this case, authors in heavy music. Just as a reminder, if you enjoy the podcast and these conversations with the artists you love, it would mean the world if you subscribed and followed the podcast on your platform of choice. Also, you can follow me and the show at PsyWarPod on Twitter and at Psychic Warfare Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. So if you get a chance, follow the show there for updates and all happenings on things Psychic Warfare. This week, as I previously mentioned, we are switching things up a little bit and featuring an author on the show, which I actually hope to do more of in the future. But don't worry, this dude has lived and breathed heavy music for a long, long time, and he knows his shit. Andrew Thorpe King joins me on the show today. He is an entrepreneur, financial mentor, motivational speaker, and the author of Failure Rules, The Five Rules of Failure for Entrepreneurs, Creatives, and Authentics, which contains a lot of valuable wisdom about how to live your most authentic life and embrace, chase, and achieve what you truly desire in your soul. I am very excited to chat about a lot of great facets of the book with him, and I hope you all check it out as you can find the book on Amazon or wherever you purchase books. Andrew, welcome to Psychic Warfare, and it's a pleasure to have you here today. Chris, thanks for having me, man. I I love the concept of talking about the intersection of spirituality and philosophy with heavy music, because it's a connection that so many people don't make and ought make, because it's absolutely there, absolutely important to talk about. I appreciate that, man. I appreciate that. I totally agree with you. And just to start off here, I want to ask you personally, how are you feeling at this moment in time specifically mentally physically and spiritually oh that's a loaded first question there. Mentally, <laughs> physically, spiritually. starting right out uh, the gate <laughs> yeah mentally i'm doing well you know i i think um uh you know in the new year uh, i laid out my plans i i know kind of my roadmap of where i want to go uh you know w- with all roadmaps of, of of plans you know you have to plan for iteration and flexibility uh, I'm focusing on the moment while still having an eye on the future. Uh, you know, I have a good sense of the trajectory and status of the core relationships in my life, uh, which brings me mental mental health and mental stability. Uh, physically, I'm doing well. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a bit of an outlier in terms of like um, promotion of maximal physical health. I mean, for me, it's really the yin and the yang. It's the balances of my vices and my virtues because I love them all. Right. So, you know, I I like to get the gym three times a week, throw some steel around. Uh, I like to hike. Uh, I like to do a lot of walking, cycling, um, you know, all of that stuff. But I also like to drink my bourbon and smoke my cigars and, and, uh, you know, balance it out with those type of of relaxants, uh, you know, in, in in moderate moderation. Of course. I I like to say that, uh, I drink frequently, but not a lot. Balance in all so, things. Uh, and then on the spiritual front, you know, um, I, I feel well there too. You know, it's a constant, I wouldn't say a struggle, but it's a constant effort to continually peg myself back to the constancy of inner life versus the volatility of outer life and external life. And remembering that, you know, I don't have a soul. I am a soul. I have a body. Mm. Uh, I'm soul first, body second. Uh, you know, I am uh, an internal, eternal spirit first living in a material world, uh, you know, like John Joseph of the Crow Mag said to me once when I interviewed him, get a roll with the punches in the material world, you know, and centering myself with that, that non-attachment mentality, whether you draw that philosophy from Buddhism or uh, mystical Judaism or, or Christianity, wherever you draw a non-attachment, uh, you know, philosophy, to me, that is very, very important to remember that we're just not, we're not just this flesh, we, we are so much more. And so as things shift around me and, and uh, as Raghunath Kappa would say, as things shift and crumble, uh, remembering uh, that we are our first soul and, and second bodies. Yeah. And I mean, leading off with that, when you sent me uh, your book to check out, I mean, right pretty much from the hop, I knew that there was going to be a lot in here that I resonate with. And I really do resonate with so, so much of this book. Um, and normally I start off by asking the guest after the first question, I usually ask about, you know, your spiritual upbringing, but you talk about that a little bit in the book. You were it literally a section about how you were the a preacher's son, um, but you also grew up a punk kid. But I wanted to kind of follow that up since you kind of already elaborate on that in the book. You know, what is your relationship with the divine now and how it influences us on an ec- internal and external level? Because you mentioned this quote 
my own faith path, which I ultimately discovered in contemplative Christianity, the notion that the emphasis on internal attentiveness to our soul's intuitive response to God's dimension within us guides the ongoing transformations of our spiritual path. So I was hoping you could tell me about that and kind of what your relationship with the divine is and how you feel it kind of interacts with, with all of us. Yeah, so I think that's a good place to start on that is this idea of contemplative Christianity, which you know is not some sort of comprehensive spiritual branding, right? It, it, it's pretty elusive, even in, in the description that you just read from the book. But that is kind of the point. I see it as a very mysterious, uh, elusive, ethereal you know, state of being to try to be in touch with the divine, because it's very difficult to define. It's very difficult to uh, sometimes interpret. It's difficult to maintain. Uh, and it's very personal. It's very individual. Uh, which is, you know, why, I, you know, I don't really belong to any groups, uh, as Bill Burr, the community would say, fuck you and your groups. It's kind of how I feel. Uh, I'm not against anybody who's in groups. And I understand associations and working with people and for common causes and all that. But I've just always been pretty um, uh, repellent to, to groups and groupthink. But yet I've retained this spirituality. And, and, and for me, it is within the framework of Christianity that works for me. Um, that makes sense for me from a, a reconciliation between the perfect perfection of the divine and the imperfection of human uh, of, of humankind. Uh, at the same time, I get a lot of power and a lot of strength, you know, out of what I would say is non-contradictory, subordinate uh, wisdom. Whether I draw that from 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 you know uh, you know Buddhism, whether I draw it from uh, uh, Judaism, whether I draw it from you know a Motorhead song, wherever yeah. it comes from, I think that human beings are creators. Uh, just as much as we are created. Uh, and because we are creators, there's so much downstream, unique, nuanced wisdom that comes from us as, as essentially artists in this life. And we all are artists, whether we uh, practice it or not in some way, shape or form, because we're knitted together in our mother's wombs. We are unique. We are mysterious. We have our own absolutely unique perception and way of being in the world. And when that's expressed, you know, we are artists. We are all one of one limited edition. You know, and so that makes us, you know, very unique creatures. I mean, we're almost um, small G gods in, in our own in our own sense with our creative abilities. Um, and so when I when I think of that, you know, I just think of the connection between that uh, dynamicism within us as human beings, uh, and um, what to me is uh, a likely connection to. A divinity being being the spark that allowed that within us. I uh, I agree with so much of what you said. Again, I knew we were going to jive from a lot of a lot of what you say in the book, and even what you're saying now. I I you know it's kind of what I talk talked many times on here. You know, constructing your own faith and spirituality from whatever source, you know, just helps you be a better person. You know, to what that means to you and to you know, so that you treat people better in the world. And mm -hmm. going off of continuing, you know, what you were just talking about, what we were just talking about, another quote, there's going to be a lot of quotes in this, uh, in this podcast, by the way, for the listener. So just a little uh, preface there. But this quote, the next one, you write, truthfully, I really couldn't care less about what you believe. I hear people say all the time that they believe that everything happens for a reason. It's a cliche and easy to claim. I don't think most people really believe that at all. Rather, they just say that to make themselves feel better when life does whatever the hell it wants to them. That said, I do believe that some things happen for a reason. Not many things, but some things. Big things, consequential things, undeniable things, unexpected things, events, and pivotal moments. Stuff we couldn't manufacture, create, or force. You can call it fate, universal inertia, karma, whatever. I believe in God, so I call it God. But I actually am genuinely curious about what you believe in, ironically, going off that <laughs> quote. So what do you think, why do, or why, why do you think those big events happen for a reason? In the context of your stated belief in God, do you believe God recognizes our fullest potential and being and most authentic self and thus puts moments like that in our lives to steer us in a certain direction? Or is it something else? I do. I do. I think, I think if we're attentive to it, and we're seeking it out, you know, the old seek and ye shall find. And we are looking for ways to maximize our unique output in the world, our unique impact in the world. I think that there's a collaboration with the divine where the divine sees that and wants to conspire with us to allow that in the world for good. And I think that lubricating moments occur that we couldn't manufacture that help us on that way. But I do think that there's 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 some, you know, there's a dance in play there where we have to, you know, kind of on our own free will be seeking it out and be looking for that. If we're not, we are not going to find it. Those moments will not occur. 
and we won't recognize them as such even if they did occur. Uh, you know, and we might squander them if they occurred. But if we're looking for those and we're aware and we have kind of our antennae, our, our antenna up for looking for those moments of, of um, you know, a, a maximalized uh, spiritual trajectory in our lives, I think that those things come, come in our path, things that we would never expect, things that really marvel us, and sometimes things that challenge us and destroy us for our own good as we rebuild, which is the crux of failure rules. Yeah, and uh, you had already answered my next question, which was the balance between, you know, when you talk about how we're also, you know, like in your, you don't actually throw out a percentage, but I'm interpreting it as he's saying he's like 85% of life is probably governed by free will and being open to those experiences. And the 15% of things that you have to watch out for is, is those moments mm. of fate or those moments of d divine kind of providence put mm. in front of you. And that was my next question. Like, are you saying we have to have the free will to put ourselves in alignment of, for those moments of fate to happen? And, and obviously the answer is, is yes to that. Yeah, I mean, I think so. It doesn't mean that the divine couldn't break through a, a, a stubborn or inactive free will because the divine is divine. It's mysterious and it's all powerful, right? Yep. But at the same time, I think that we, we step into the current of that divine power and guidance uh, when we do it intentionally and of our own free will and our own desire to want to see that and to want to join ourselves with that in our day-to-day -day lives. And so let's get deeper into a lot of two terms that you do use often in the book. And one is capital B being, and the other is the word, use the word essence a couple times. And uh, one other mm. quote, because we're doing quotes, uh, no matter <laughs> what strain of failure befalls you, if it is real failure, it will strip you down to your true essence. So what do you believe essence is and the being is? Like, is the, is essence and being something that is inherent to us, like from creation, from when we're born, or is essence and being something that is created and kind of forged over time? I think it's definitely a little bit of both, right? I think I think there is an essence that is instilled in us in the womb uh, that is full of potential. And I would make that a capital P potential, potential with a with divine uh, divine uh, injection in it, uh, and I think. Um, you know, as we go out in the world and our free will interacts with, with the world. And again, it's that alchemy of free will versus the uh, divine, uh, you know, revelation or guidance or, 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 um, presence. Uh, and as we do that, you know, our essence can change. And, and I don't think it's predetermined. I, and I think, uh, you know, that that becomes our essence over time that it's evolving, but I do think it starts with a quintessential core essence that is planted us within us from the divine because, of the unique nature of all our DNA, the unique nature of our own temperaments, even, uh, and the unique nature of you know, when we're born, in what time, in what place, to what family, to what geography, and how that all can, you know, then shape us in such a way where we're utterly unique. Again, the one of one uh, limited edition uh, idea. <laughs> and I think as we we move move into life, you know, that essence is ongoing. But I think it also gets crowded. It gets a it gets muzzled by the accumulation of materialism, the accumulation of, you know, earthly distractions, the accumulation of our own manufactured stress, the accumulation of failed priorities, uh, the accumulation of um, externally induced anxiety, all the things that this world can do to distract, uh, disrupt, and, uh, you know, take us away from a focus on the beauty and essence of, of who we are as created beings in a very mysterious, unsafe world. The, the biggest, the first uh, rule in your book is basically failure purifies, which is the sense that you are stripped down to the purest essence and, and, and most authentic version of yourself often when you fail to the greatest degree. And, you know, mm. I, I just, I was chuckling to myself when I was reading through that first section because there's, I don't play Magic the Gathering, but I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Magic the Gathering, the card game, but there's a card in Magic the Gathering called One With Nothing. It's a pretty famous card. And the, the flavor text mm. on the card says, when nothing remains, everything is possible, which I guess mm. is kind of what you're saying in a, that's a much simpler way of putting it, but when nothing remains, everything is possible. So what you say is that you, you're, when you are at that point, there's no more armor. There's no more there's no more walls that are up. It's kind mm. of just pure, like you said, this kind of like soul being that you know that you are first before you are a physical body. Yeah. Like that's that's what you're saying that that ultimate failure will reveal in you. I mean, it's almost going back to that the essence in the womb that we're talking about. Although you you now have memories of things that you've experienced throughout your life, but uh, you know, with, with certain failures. I mean, when 
And when almost all the infrastructure or much of the core infrastructure of your life, whether it be a core relationship or a core job or an identity you identity that you attach to a career, an identity that you attach to a subculture, if those things are stripped away and you were living as if those things were all that you were and that they were the most important things about who you are, when they're stripped away, then you are left with that essence and you have a choice to look at that, uh, to try to identify what the, the highest attributes of that are and to figure out the best way to reapply that in the world and reinvent it. Uh, and, you know, just, just to kind of back up, I talk about the dichotomy of, you know, external attachments and internal attachments and trying to allow the spiritual to lead the physical, like the mystic, the Maharal Prague would, would, would talk about. Um, but at the same time, none of this is about eschewing the material world. None of this is about eschewing wealth. It's not about eschewing pleasure or enjoyment or interaction in the world. This isn't like some you know, idea of, you know, being some sort of reclusive hermit. I mean, it is the opposite. It's the balance of knowing that essence, but then going out and finding out the most maximized way to apply that in the world for the benefit of the world and ultimately the benefit of, of us, uh, because I think that's where we find our greatest joy. I mean, according to the Bhagavad Gita, where, you know, we have a right to our work, but not the outcome of our work. I mean, I think the actual effort of applying our highest attributes to the world is in and of itself a, a distinct, uh, you know, quality of joy and of happiness and fulfillment. Love that. And I love, I loved that um, you pull a lot of Eastern because I'm, I'm really big on a lot of Eastern philosophy. You, you pull from all over the place in the book. And, but I was especially, cause that's a lot, that's left out a lot. I think, especially in like Western culture, a lot of kind of like pulling from Eastern philosophy and, and teachings and writing. So that was awesome. And I wanted to but ask overall, we're kind of going on a more broad context now than kind of a, a more targeted one. How much of the lessons and these rules that, that you kind of espouse and 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 point out are built on a foundation of having a, a sizable work ethic drive and willpower and you talk a lot about you know comfort and safety how do you how do you battle that like do you think people are just inherently built differently between those who seek pure authenticity and who have that within them and that calling journey versus those who crave safety and security like is that an inherent difference like you talked about essences or are those differences things that are learned behaviors and learned traits, tenets from, from our parents and how we're, how we're raised. And uh, can you switch from one to another? Like, can you go from someone who craves safety and security stability and have kind of like a, maybe it does take failure, but have a moment where you're like, the fuck am I doing? Like, I need, like, yeah. this is not what I'm meant to be doing. So how much of that is built on the, the desire and the work ethic and the drive to do these things? That's a great question. I don't think we can know if, if there are people that simply do not have the essence within them uh, to overcome the numbness that is induced by, uh, you know, a safety mentality or the suppression uh, of their authentic self because they're afraid to go after it in an unsafe world. Um, but to point to an example of exactly what you're talking about, of, of, of being in one state and then converting to another, you look at look at the life of David Goggins, you know, triathlete, motivational speaker, ex Navy SEAL. Um, he was way overweight, numbing himself with the comfort of overeating. He was, you know, an exterminator. You know, killing cockroaches was his job. He was miserable. He was burying all the um, all the racism he endured uh, growing up. He was burying all the abuse of his father growing up. And at one point, he just snapped, and he had a fucking moment. And he decided this was not who he's going to be. And I'm, I remember hearing him on the Rich Roll podcast talking about, you know, how he didn't want to, uh, you know, die and, and, and go go and face uh, God and uh, see a highlight reel of what could have been had he chosen to uh, live his life differently and uh, do difficult things and, and overcome uh, the comfort uh, addiction he had. Uh, and, you know, so he had this pivotal moment. And that made him change everything. Uh, went after being Navy SEAL, lost the weight. You can read both his books, Can't Hurt Me and, and Never Finish, and you'll learn all about it. Great books I recommend. Actually, Can't Hurt Me was uh, the same publisher that Failure Rules came out on, which is uh, Lioncrest. Um, so I think of that, right? Like, so that switch is in us because it's that divine switch. It's that switch that will, you know, um, reject comfort. Uh, go after difficulty, go after uh, danger because it's a it's it's a higher pursuit, a higher value, and it is worth it compared to the numbness and the joylessness of you know mediocrity and safety. Yeah, and I want to. I really, I, my life is kind of as I'm reading this book, I'm tracing kind of the ebb and flow of my life where 
I think growing up and young, being younger, I, I, I knew I always had this inside me and I followed it to a large degree. And then, you know, I got older, I'm, I'm a late bloomer in a lot of areas of life. And so as I got, as I got older, I kind of reached certain points past when other people were. So, you know, I, I'm, I kind of were it was at a point of comfort for, for a little bit of time. And now I feel like I'm kind of on the uphill climb again of like really mm. going after the most authentic life I can. And this podcast is a huge uh, testament to that because yeah. I, I've, I've been always been someone who's been like, my mind has always been flooded with, Oh, this would be a great idea if I did this, or this would be so cool if this existed. And I just never had the the drive and motivation in me to, to do that. Mm. And a lot of that helped, you know, being on starting uh, ADHD medication that definitely like clarified a few things for me mm. and uh, yeah, that yeah, may not yeah. work for everybody, but that, that helps for me a lot. But I think it, it, it did take its own natural progression just by getting older too. And I am very, some, I'm someone more now more than ever that is very much in line with what you talk about, like not safety averse, cause you don't want to like put yourself in yeah. reckless danger, but exactly definitely, right. definitely more of taking the risks to to pursue what ultimately you know when you feel it inherently will make you the most happy. And the two quotes that I wrote down, and I'll, the question is after, the first one that I love because I want people to hear it is, nothing is safe anyway, because nothing is safe anyway, it behooves you to follow pursuits worthy of your life. This means that you need to keep the fire inside burning. Otherwise, you fall into the trap of basing your life on external decisions. When you do this, your fire burns out. When you allow your fire inside to burn out, you will feel the dull, comforting lie of external safety. And you will also suffer the deep, penetrating emptiness of a fireless life. And I was like, oh boy, like that <laughs> resonates with me, resonates with me. And then the second quote that I loved, uh, the world is full of pleasant, relatively content and comfortable people who lack substantive meaning in their lives. As a result, they often possess no measurable depth. Without depth, they fail to maximize the growth of their gratitude, empathy, and adaptability muscles. So two-part question, and they're, they're both kind of connected, but what do you define as true depth in a person? And the other part that you talk about is the, a, a concept called shallowness of the soul. And what are the external presentations that you notice in someone who has a shallowness of the soul? You know, what are, so what is true depth on one end in a person and what is shallowness of the soul on the other? So I'll start with the shallowness. Shallowness, I think, often manifests in egregious ego and arrogance, which is wholly distinct from healthy confidence. I love healthy confidence. I love outgoing people that are definitive in what they say and how they say it. I love that. I, I strive to be that to myself. But that does not need to be contaminated with egregious ego and egregious arrogance. And when I see egregious ego and egregious arrogance, it's usually a facade that is easily shattered and you'll find shallowness below it. You'll fi find uh, insecurity. You'll find a lack of depth, I think, in many. And in that lack of depth really comes from a place of a siloed worldview uh, of, of uh, a, a minimized emotional intelligence and, and from people who have not suffered enough material or meaningful brokenness to have the necessary humility and empathy to, to be in the world in such a way where they can really connect with others because we are all absolutely 100% broken to certain degrees throughout our lives. Uh, and I think that uh, when we experience that, like federal number one, failure purifies, it absolutely gives us a different empathy for others. It absolutely gives us a different humility uh, as we listen to others and we might be tempted to judge them reflexively. Uh, and I think that um, to me, that would be the depth. The depth would be to understand the fragility of our own lives, the fragility of our own logic, the fragility even of our own faith uh, many times, and to you know use that recognition as something that allows us to be kinder in the world uh, doesn't mean that we can't ever uh, assess with certainty, right, and, and draw delineations between right and wrong and, and good and bad and healthy and unhealthy. But I think it just really will invoke a, a depth that allows us to look at someone who might think completely different than us, who makes decisions completely different than us, and find a way to understand them, even if we don't agree with them, and find a way to empathize with their thought processes and their decision-making processes and love them, even if we still, at the end of the day, think that they might be wrong <laughs> no, and, and the ability to love people that you don't agree with and that you still think they're wrong. That's divinity. Yeah. Within. That's, that's been talked about before by other guests too. And it's a, such a powerful, you know, goal that we're all trying to kind of achieve in this world. And how much of, how much of what you just said is, 
really comes down to like, you have to be, because right off the bat in the book, you start off saying like, this book is meant to be like reassessed and like nothing is like, this should not remain stagnant. And you are, you constantly express like the openness of yourself to change and also just open-mindedness and open-heartedness in general. Like how much of this is, is kind of boiled down to like, you need to be, you, you have to learn to be willing to learn always mm-hmm. like a, a lifelong student of life and also be open-minded to everything. Like my, my mm-hmm. father, who's a huge influence in my own life, he always signs his emails saying, keep on thinking free. And what mm-hmm. he means by that is like, never stop kind of being the that lifelong student and open to learning, whether that's the, through the experiences of life or learning through what other people have to say and like being like, you know what? I never thought about, that's the kind of the goal with this podcast is reaching out to people and presenting different viewpoints. People have, may have, may think to themselves through the lens of heavy music and the musicians and, and creatives that they love, they might think, you know what? This person thinks about something this way. I never would have thought about things that way. Let me kind of like be open to that. And maybe that, maybe that'll work for me if I try it. So how much is just being open to learning? It's a big part of it. I mean, what you're talking about there in the introduction, I tried very carefully to really present like the humility of, of the intellect. Like, yes, I have a lot to say. I think it's important, but I'm not a prophet. Like, you know, like I didn't write this book because I had a revelation from God necessarily. Maybe there's some divinity in it. Great. That's awesome. But I'm not going to make that claim. Right. I'm just a human. Um, and, uh, you know, furthermore, it is that beginner mindset. It's that ever like uh, position posture of humility to know that like everything I think I know right now might be wrong. Doesn't mean I can't still believe it right now, but believe it tempered with a little bit of humility that you might be wrong, right? Whatever it is. And again, this is difficult because a lot of people take pride in their deeply held beliefs. I've done that in the past and I'm trying to have deeply held beliefs without being prideful about them. To have deeply held beliefs that I'm still open to changing my mind on uh, if the right information or revelation comes to force me to change my mind on it. So you can still have deeply held beliefs and principles that you try to peg your life to, even imperfectly, because we're all imperfect and the world is unsafe. But know that our perception of things is still always limited. Our understanding of of things is always going to be limited, at least on this side of eternity. We don't know about the other side, right? And so it's, it's trying to have that mindset, which will undoubtedly allow you to be open to other ideas, uh, without necessarily just, you know, willy-nilly abandoning your deeply held beliefs, yeah. but allowing yourself to step outside of your deeply held beliefs and appropriately challenge them uh, objectively uh, when it calls for it. Going off of that, you quote Emerson in a certain portion of the book. And again, I was happy to see that because three of the biggest like places where I draw my own personal like spirituality and guiding, you know, guiding principles in my life, you you quote pretty have not maybe not heavily all of all of them but definitely uh, a certain amount like transcendentalism being one you know a lot of eastern zen buddhism and eastern religion philosophy and then um stoicism uh mm-hmm. a lot of that and I, I can't remember whether it was emerson or, or whitman or, or thoreau i don't remember which transcendentalist said it but the, the the do i contradict myself very well then i contain multitudes is kind of like what i think about that kind of yeah. that yeah, mentality yeah. of that opening that opening um that opening part that you just talked about, which is uh, right in line with me. And, you know, I want, going on to something a little more difficult to, to reckon with in some ways for some people, ultimately all we have is ourselves. And I think to some degree, we all know that, but you talk a lot about in the book, the split with your ex-wife, you know, is not only did she not express her love to you, which is pretty goddamn important for a, any relationship to thrive, but didn't yeah. align with your your inner being and and that desire in you to pursue an authentic life. And mm. for people out there who, you know, are in are in relationships and especially ones that aren't even as that didn't turn out to be as non-loving as that one that are in very loving relationships but their partner is very different. Like, you know, they have a very different inner spirit voice that r- might run counter or opposite to yours. Maybe they are very much more safety driven, practical driven while the other partner has a uh, that that authentic drive and you know there are other factors at play in your own story but how can you reckon like what are the the ways that that can be reconciled and, and worked on aside from probably therapy but are there <laughs> are there practical things that that you know of that can work for people that 
love their partner and like want to be with their particular partner and still have a very deep loving relationship, but their partner's spirit voice or their, their, their being is kind of runs counter in a lot of ways to, to yours. Or do you think that's something that's always kind of doomed to fail? I wouldn't say it's always doomed to fail, but it's difficult to assess at the onset, especially when you're blinded by romantic love. Um, and you're excited about a, a potential future. You start building the practical, you know, uh, framework to, to have a future together with a partner. And you're thinking about where you're going to live and you're going to do this job and I'm going to do this job and this is how it's all going to work. And here's the structure and boom, you're, you're in it, right? And to assess a partner and to figure out, you know, are they going to be okay if this structure falls apart? When this structure or if this structure uh, crumbles and shifts? Will they still love me, even if uh, all the things I say I'm going to do now don't work out, or if if the things that we have planned don't work out, you know, for better or for worse? If the worst happens, what happens, right? And if it's built on, you know, an external structure or some sort of transactional mindset of, uh, of well, if you provide this uh, and I provide this, we can stay stay together. Um, I, I think that's an issue. On, on the flip side, if you're with somebody and you, you know, say you get married to them, and, and in that marriage, while you hold the marriage, you know, sacred and important and um, tight, right, and it's unique, if your love for that person and their own wholeness supersedes your attachment to the institution of marriage, I think that's the best place to be. So that even if the marriage becomes unviable, which might be regrettable. If your love for them is such where you just want their wholeness, whether you're married to them or not, then as things crumble and shift, you can find a way to move on and move forward. You know, even whether you're with them or not with them or remain friends or what it might be. But if your desire is for their wholeness, uh, I think that's, I think that's the best place to be. Um, and uh, you know, that could happen when you're in a relationship who somebody might have mental health issues or, you know, uh, other things that might break down within their lives uh, and uh, might actually threaten like the daily like efficacy of a functional marriage. Um, if you're holding that functional marriage below your desire for their wholeness, you might actually be OK with the marriage dissolving in a peaceful, and loving way. Yeah. Even if it's not optimal, right? Because marriage is an ideal. I mean, there's a reason so many marriages fail because it's very difficult and it's an ideal. We should go after it. But it is an ideal, like any other perfection ambition. It's an ideal, and sometimes we can only get so far up the the, the tree of that ideal. Interesting, interesting. I really appreciate that answer. And on to the next topic, I wanted to ask: is you mentioned the importance of seeking mentors repeatedly? And do you think we live in an era where a lot of people are reticent to find a mentor, or do you think it's the opposite that more people than ever are are more than willing to kind of latch on to? Maybe even a person they think is a mentor may not be the best mentor. Do you think we're kind of, it's which, which side of the spectrum do you think we're kind of living in right now in terms of the desire for people to kind of seek a mentor? Well, I think a lot of people have mentors without knowing it. They have people that they admire where they're not even conscious they admire it. They just kind of follow and they just kind of allow themselves to be subordinate to them. Uh, and sometimes that's good if it's a good mentor, but if it's not, it's not good. So we need to be discerning in that. And I think we need to be intentional about that. And we need to never deify a mentor. We need to never put them up, anybody on such a pedestal where their word becomes almost gospel, right? And I think we can build a portfolio of mentors, particularly in this world, the digital world, of virtual mentors through books or podcasts or media, whoever you follow, where you can compile uh, piecemeal wisdom from a variety of people where you may not agree with everything they say, but certain things they say absolutely resonate and map back to your own authenticity. Uh, and you can have a real kind of a hack, a shortcut to really build that framework to give yourself a stronger, more informed, more wise, authentic life. Uh, and I think that is crucial. I mean, if it were not for some of the books I read and music I listened to uh, and some of the actual you know, in-person mentors I've had, I wouldn't have wrote this book, nor would I have uh, been able to process the failures I encountered in such a way where, like uh, Nassim Tlaib's book, Anti-Fragile, I actually gained from hard. I didn't just get up resiliently and get back to uh, you know a neutral position. I actually gained and, and multiplied in strength and understanding from harm. Uh, and I don't know that I would have done that without the wisdom of so many virtual mentors and some of the wisdom of in-person mentors in my life. But none of them do I deify. 
you know, and I think that's that's something to keep in mind. We we don't need we don't need to uh, deify other people. Next question is a two another two parter. You know, starts with the quote that you say actually pretty early on, and I was curious. I literally just wrote elaborate because I'm just fascinated by it. Which is whether we like it or not, war is a symptom of deep rooted failures in the human condition. And then you, you there's a section later on in the book about finding a way to give a damn. And I wanted to apply it to the question of how can we better learn to give a damn about other people like you mentioned earlier, even if they're different from us, like loving in spite of like massive, massive differences. Cause it's obviously you look around anywhere, it's it's all over. And maybe there's less of that going on than the, than probably media outlets want us to believe. But you know, I, I think there are a lot of people that have a hard time giving a damn about others because again, it's it's kind of an insular focus or things are kind of, and again, we're talking about ultimately you are all you have, but you can't, I don't think you can isolate to the point where you stop caring about other people altogether. Sure. So, you know, first part was about, you know, elaborating on the the war and I guess conflict, you can even take it a, you know, a step further and just say all oh, conflict is a deep symptom of deep rooted failures in the human condition. But how can we better learn to give a damn about other people if they're especially different from us? Yeah, so I'll take the, the war question. I mean, to me, that war, sickness, dysfunction, uh, the contamination of evil or just, um, again, dysfunction in the world has always produced conflict, had it has always produced, um, you know, oftentimes war um, and sickness will be with us as long as we're mortals. Right. And, and you know, on the one hand, I applaud any initiative to try to reduce uh, the pain of any of that or reduce the uh, the symptoms of sickness or to eliminate sickness. We ought to continue doing that, like the advancement of humankind and, and medicine uh, and effort for peace are always noble, um, you know, if, if they're thought through, right, and if they're not naive. Uh, but at the same token, I think we, this, this desire to try to create the world into some sort of utopia is uh it's false. It's it's never going to happen. <laughs> Again, does not mean we should not try to reduce suffering wherever we can, uh, but we need to accept at the same time that death is inevitable, that sickness will always be part of the world in some shape or form, uh, no matter how much we whack them all things, uh, that war is always going to happen because anger and evil and division and tribalism, again, while ought be reduced, and I think it's being reduced in many ways in this world. It's also being increased. And it's always going to be something to contend with, with life on earth. Uh, this is not a paradise. It's never going to be. I think we're in the best place we've ever been in humankind in some ways. And then in other ways, we're also as tenuous, more tenuous than we've ever been because of our connectivity and the power uh, that we've accumulated in terms of um, uh, communication and, 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 um, and technology. And so yeah, the, the second part of that, how can we learn better to give a damn about other people that are different? Is it, does it start from within? You know, like if you give a damn more about yourself and your own authenticity, does that transfer over? Or is there other, other good ways that we can learn that if we struggle with that? I think that's a great place to start. I don't think it's the only place to start, you know, having our own authenticity, but certainly self-awareness and going back into the uh, being cognizant of the nature of our own brokenness and how that's inherent in the human condition and to not try to deny that, not try to cover that up with ego. Uh, I think that allows us to love others more when they think wildly differently than us. Um, and again, it doesn't mean we can't have judgments on specific actions. We can still have judgments oh, yeah. on behavior, right. but that should not, um, you know, overpower our ability to, to love the underlying being with the capital B. Uh, right. Um, and uh, of course, that's difficult when you really have someone who really embodies, you know, potentially evil, right? However you define that, uh, where, you know, I think most people believe in some sort of evil. They might define it differently, some softer than others, but I, I think evil exists. And that's that's really difficult, right? Um, and sometimes with, with evil, you have to eliminate it uh, while still trying to understand uh, what created it and try to, you know, mitigate that in the world as much as possible. Um, but you know, I, I really would go back to the brokenness thing. Being being um, aware of our own brokenness, I think, is is a great place to start to be able to empathize with others and love others who might think wildly differently than. There's a whole section in the book about it's the third failure rule: money is spiritual. And at first, you know, going through it because you know, I I I I don't have a you know any lucrative business. I just work kind of a 
I'm I'm doing the the thing one thing too. Uh, mm-hmm. A little bit when you talk about later on where I'm working a day job kind of as, a, you know, to have the financial backing to kind of, you know, work on the podcast and work on other ideas that I'm like I mentioned earlier, I'm kind of just I'm on the uptick, the uphill yeah. of kind of like really trying to chase it more than I was maybe in some past years. But, you know, I reading the quote about or the the, the section about money is spiritual. It made me think of two quotes and I wanted to get, you know, your thoughts on on both. I, I watched recently. There's this clip of Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, where he says, what good is a flashy house and a fancy car to me? Absolutely no good at all. I've been put on this planet to protect wildlife and wilderness areas. I want to save the world. And you know what? And you know money? Money's great. I can't get enough money. And you know what I'm going to do with it? I'm going to buy wilderness areas with it. Every single cent I get goes straight into conservation, and I don't give a rip whose money it is. I'm going to use it, and I'm going to spend it on buying land. You know, is that a perfect example of treating money as spiritual and loving the meaning of what money can do yeah. or loving money itself? I think that's great, man. I never heard that, but I love that. That's a great you know, uh, you know, eccentric way to uh, give an example of money spiritual. And I think, and again, I talk about it in the book in the context of failure that you have to understand the power of money. It's an agnostic tool. If you verge into the failure territories of either envy or greed, which I view as malevolent twin siblings of the same spirit, if you can stay out of that and stay in the lane of, of viewing money as a thank you note and as a force multiplier when steered correctly and used correctly for good, I, I think it, it, that's when money is spiritual, right? And Steve Irwin's quote's exactly right. I mean, I, I think the same way. I mean, I spent a lot of money to make this book, a lot. I retained the rights. I, I used uh, Scribe Media, who's a professional publishing house for self-published authors, where they've all worked at large book companies and they all have great pedigree. I mean, the woman that did the cover art for the book did the cover art for a lot of Stephen King's books. And, you know, they're just top notch. But I retained the rights and I spent a lot of money to make this happen from paying for the audiobook, started a merchandise company, Soul on Fire Supply Company to echo many of the themes in the book uh, in merchandise designs. And um, that might not be from many people's view, a great investment, but for me, it's the Steve Irwin thing. I'm gonna use my, my high, what I believe is my highest talent and use in the world, which has kind of catalyzed into these, what I believe might be valuable insights for people, we'll see. And I'm going to put that in the world. And that's where I put my money. And um, if you give me more money, I'm going to do more of that. You know, right. I, I'm, I'm still going to enjoy my hot tub. I'm still going to enjoy driving my Cadillac. But those things are just window dressing. They're just, you know, the byproducts of everything else. You can take all that away. And what matters to me yeah. is finding a way to put meaning out in the world. And if, if I can get more money to do that, it can be more powerful. Like you said, right? you're not al- it's not like you're not allowed to have fun, too. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, yeah. you know, another quote, because I, ha- I have to work in another Alan Watts quote, because I have to do it every episode, apparently. Um, Alan Watts, uh, in, a, in one of his, his lectures, one of my favorite spiritual figures of all time, um, said, you know, when students told him what they wanted to do with their life beyond what parents and educators kind of wished or imposed upon them or what they thought they were supposed to do, he told them, you go do that and forget the money. Because he said that if you get good enough at anything, the money will inevitably follow. And I think that that's, in a way, kind of when you focus on, you know, your authentic life and your drive and what you're meant to do, like, if you get good enough at it and pour enough of yourself into it, like, there will be failures, like you say, you will fail. But I think ultimately, a lot of what your book says is, if you're not afraid to follow those, the rules in your book and pivot and adapt and, you know, do those things, but then the money will inevitably follow if you go do, if you pour all of yourself into going to do what you are most passionate about. Well, it may or may not but you need to find a way to deal with or without the money to fuel it, or you need to find creative ways to fuel it, which is what the thing one and thing two dependency is about. Favorable number four is chase after that North star aspirational dream, your thing two, uh, but find a thing one enabler pursuit or some sort of scaffolding or structure that can give you as much safety as possible, even though nothing is safe and the world is unsafe, but you still want to make it as safe as possible. So you can more safely go after that wild, you know, off-road dream, uh, and know that, you know, nothing is safe, including your dreams. Um, but I believe that you can still find a way to follow your dreams, do them, put that out in the world. And the dream itself may or may not make money. But if you find creative ways to build a life to enable that dream to come into reality anyway, you're doing your job. You know, it goes back to the Bhagavad Gita quote, like you have a right to the work, not the, not the outcome of the results of the work. You, there, there's no guarantee that money will be a byproduct. I think oftentimes it is, right? And fundamentally, if you're persistent enough uh, and you do it long enough, uh, it will. 
Um, but you might need other sources of money too. Yeah. You might need a low meaning job to tie it to, to support it. Uh, many times you will, particularly on the way up. Um, so I wouldn't say that money always follows. I think that money often follows after a long period of time with the right persistency. Um, but even still, you have to find a way to do what you're supposed to do. You have to find creative ways to find the time, uh, to find money to support it. And if it makes money back, great, you want that. Um, but you can't let the lack of a, a financial return deter you from continuing to do what you were meant to do with your highest talents. I loved this this Kierkegaard quote that you put in the book. The greatest hazard of all, losing oneself, can occur very quietly in the world as if it were nothing at all. No other loss can occur so quietly. Any other loss, an arm, a leg, $5, a wife, et cetera, is sure to be noticed. I guess you can only speak from your perspective and, and, and I guess the perspective of other people that you've spoken to, but how does that manifest physically? Like, how do you, mm. how, how can we all begin to kind of recognize like something's not right here? Like mm. I'm, I'm, I am, I like that, that feeling of losing yourself. Like, how does that manifest? How did it physically kind of manifest in you? Like, what does that feel like? And how can we notice the symptoms, so to speak of that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think again of the Thoreau quote, which has been popularized by Joe Rogan, that so many men live lives of quiet desperation. And I mean, did you ever see somebody who had it all together on the outside, you know, had the house, the car, the good job, yeah. presented themselves well, all in that. But you got this sense that there's an emptiness there, that yeah, they're hiding something, or that there's this numbness, that they're suppressed in some way, that somehow they're doing everything for everybody else. And not out of nobility, but just out of compliance and fear to do anything different, you know. And to me, that's somebody who's lost himself. To me, that's the quiet losing of yourself that it takes a discerning eye to detect. That's what Kierkegaard's saying to me. And I feel like I, I see that a lot. I mean, you can't know 100% what's in someone's heart, but you can tell sometimes from people's temperament or spirit or the way they carry themselves in the world that that's there often. You know, and then I see the opposite. I people see people whose lives are a mess, but somehow they have this persistent joy and, and, and uh, authenticity about them that doesn't matter uh, about what's on paper and how it looks in disarray. Yeah. On the inside, they got it together and they hadn't lose themselves. Yeah, you know? inner light I mean, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's, just, great to have I, work, right? it's great to have it together on the inside and the right. outside. Yeah, but absolutely. It, it makes me think. Hurt. It makes me think of you know, Joseph Campbell quoting Babbitt that and quote at the end of Babbitt when he's the quote is I I've never done a thing I wanted to in all my life. And maybe mm. that's kind of that the, it's, it's, it is kind of that story about the guy that, the, who falls into the safety domesticity, doing what's expected trap. And then he mm. is saying, I never, I've never done a thing I wanted to in all my life. And I guess that's kind yeah. of, a, and again, a, a very succinct way of that, that losing yourself. He's totally lost himself at that. If he can admit it, admit at that point, he's never done a thing he wanted to. And also apparently uh, Soren Kierkegaard, a second official philosopher, philosopher of this podcast, because he's come up many, many times. So <laughs> funny about that. Um, Ryan Holiday, big fan of him as an author, uh, quote from him that you put here, we worship at the altar of community and collective connectivity while starving inner connectivity and the integrity of self. And he says it's, it's, it's not enough to be inclined towards deep thought and sober analysis. A leader must create time and space for it. How can those of us out there who have never really made time to think about a lot of, of the big questions of life, philosophical analysis, how can we begin to incorporate that as a regular part of our lives? Aside from probably checking out this book, uh, yeah, yeah. How, how can we, how can, what are, what are things that maybe are easy to start with that we can incorporate to kind of fuel that inner, that inner connectivity, integrity of self, those thinking about those deep, deep questions, philosophical analysis. One, you can start by just taking a long car drive without listening to music or podcasts or anything. See what comes to your head. See what that silence invokes, even if it's first uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Um, two, then, you know, you, you build on that and you find ways to, you know, periodically but temporarily isolate yourself for, for nothing but silence. So I actually wrote that chapter on a four-day weekend. I took completely by myself uh, where I barely looked at my phone, barely talked to any other human beings, took long walks, did a lot of writing, a lot of napping. And, um, you know, I think I produced like six, 7,000 words over that weekend in the book, including that chapter. And, you know, some of that silence and introspection is uncomfortable. Um, and you have to sit in that, work through that and find, find what you're supposed to find in that. Um, and so I think it, it does take planning. It takes intentionality and it's 
well-connected, very busy world we live in. I mean, even with remote working and the isolation from a physical standpoint that that causes, uh, we're still very connected, right? Our minds are still being occupied by the digital overlords that surround us, by all the pulls on our lives. Uh, and uh, that's not bad. It's good. It's good. But it needs to be managed and it needs to be led by uh, the spiritual, led by the internal strength uh, as opposed to the other direction. And that's difficult to manage. Uh, but we have to have times of intentional surpluses of solitude built into our schedules in our lives, you know, uh, to be able to really connect with that internal spirit voice and figure out if we're mapped with our calling journey or not. And if not, what do we need to do to more succinctly join ourselves with our calling journey and to be on the track to developing and using our highest usefulness in the world? How much has age impacted a lot of your ways of thinking, because I think a lot of people might feel lost in their 20s. I mean, this 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 is a case by case basis. Some people might arrive at certain revelations in their 20s, some their 30s, some their 40s. But how much do you think it kind of bends to the direction of we do feel kind of lost at a certain era of our life in our 20s, and then maybe in our 30s we really start to kind of like figure mm. some stuff out. But then maybe by the time we hit our 40s, it's like okay, like I'm done with like no more fucking around. Like I'm done with yeah, bullshit. Yeah. Like I feel very clarified in my journey and mm. purpose at this phase in my life. How much do you think age and I guess experience, but I think just even the process of just aging itself kind of like has a, has a role to play in, in learning a lot of these lessons and kind of gaining authentic or embracing authenticity. I think it has a huge role. It certainly did for me. It was age and experience. Um, I really didn't, I don't think really dug in and kind of felt like I had some grappling with these type of principles or insights or ideas until my forties, which is when I began writing this book because I was digging into these things. And as I dug into them, my, the best way for me to process them is to write them. Uh, but I do think that there's a hack for that. I, I think virtual mentors is one, you doing this podcast, reading books like this, virtual mentors that I had, whether it was reading, you know, Kierkegaard or Emerson or Ryan Holiday or James Altucher or listening to the Rich Roll podcast or, listening to the Chrome hacks, whatever it might be, those things I think can help give us hacks. Uh, you know, I think of Ryan holiday, like he's young. I don't think he's even 40 yeah. yet. Yeah. And he's dived into this stuff a lot earlier. He certainly had some life experiences to feed into it for sure. Uh, working at American Parallel, or I think that's where he worked before. Yeah. Right? If I recall. Yeah. And so I think that's great, but I think that's difficult to achieve. And I think that's, that's more, more the uh, exception than the norm. I think the norm is more later in life. For me, it really didn't start happening in my 40s. And it was always there, but it crystallized and I was able to put articulate words to it more in my 40s. Yeah. And as this is a heavy music podcast, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about your relationship to heavy music. You grew up a hardcore kid and you talk about, like you mentioned, John Joseph, Curl Mags, Henry Rollins. You talk about um, Sheer Terror. Beyond kind of what you're talking about in the book, and you do talk about a lot of very positive facets of uh, I should also mention you talk a lot about Ace of Spades and or Ace of Spades, Motorhead and Lemmy in the book. But beyond kind of what you're talking about in the book, because you talk a lot about very positive tenets of hardcore and what it espouses and and yeah. what it's built on the foundations of it, especially for people who might be more unfamiliar with the hardcore scene or people who are kind of just starting to dive in, you know, or or may not know where to start. You know, what do you think are the most important tenets of of hardcore that separates it from a lot of other you know heavy genres of music like traditional metal genres and mm, mm. things like that that resonated with you and yeah. your calling the most and pro promotes kind of a certain sense of authenticity in your life mm, great question so i like metal i like punk rock particularly street punk lots of boy very fun i love chanting along to, to pub rock or listen to the business who I, I put out a record for god rest mickey fits his soul i love all that stuff but hardcore particularly uh you know particularly new york hardcore new york style hardcore the fact that that music was so centered around looking inward, facing, but also facing reality, facing harsh realities, digging into the depth of darkness, even or the depths of pain, even more succinctly. Uh, but then in a lot of hardcore music, not all of it, you know, you're probably not going to find it in Fury of Five, <laughs> who I do like, but, you know, but a lot of hardcore was seeking out a solution, a bomb, a mitigation, a way to deal with that pain. And often it was positive, whether it was the, the non-religion, non-religious straight edge movement, whether it was 
some religious hardcore that came up, whether it was like, you know, uh, you know, bad brains with the Rastafarianism, whether it was face down records from a Christian perspective, whether it was, uh, you know, in the Nirvans or whether it was the Hare Krishna movement with Shelter and Cro-Mags, which was hugely influential, influential to me on my early spiritual development, even though I'm, I'm, I'm not a Hare Krishna, I'm not a devotee, um, but from a philosophical standpoint, they were seeking higher solutions. They were seeking uh, internal strength to deal with uh, an external reality that was harsh, to deal with pain that was real, to deal with pain that needed to be addressed and overcome, uh, to, to deal with anger and aggression that needed to be integrated and channeled into something that would be positive and help people move forward. To me, that's what hardcore is. It's a soundtrack to overcoming. It's a soundtrack to getting up off the floor when you've fallen down and to find a way to move forward with strength and boldness and authenticity and audaciousness. Yeah. And I would apply that equally to, I, I'm not the all encompassing hardcore fan. I do like a, a fair bit of it, but you know, bands kind of uh, maybe like later high school, early college that I'd kind of discovered that had been around for a lot longer, you know, like terror um, yeah. kind of very similar kind of, you know, 100%. messages that, that I definitely pull from, from stuff like that, as opposed to kind of the older hardcore bands that you grew up with. Yeah. Um, Always the hard way. That's one on the soundtrack of failure rules. I have a soundtrack on Spotify, Apple music, the failure rule soundtrack. Yeah. Terror, Always the hard way is on that. And, and I quote Scott Vogel and lyrics from that song in the book. Yep. One of the chapters. Well, Andrew, that brings us to our final two segments of the show. So first up is Tomes of Wisdom, where each guest recommends us three pieces of media that have inspired them philosophically or spiritually in the last year. And this can be books, films, games, comics, you know, anything that has made you think about your own life or life in the world in a different way. So, Andrew, what are three pieces of media you've consumed in the last year that you would recommend for us to digest? Uh, I would start with uh, all of Stephen Pressfield's book, his recent one, Put Your... Uh, ask where your heart wants to be and even his new memoir government cheese just a great kind of like journey into the wilderness of um of, of finding your authentic self and and sometimes being in exile I, I, I would say stephen pressfield's work uh secondly i would say the the the, the show slow horses on apple has been one of my favorite it, lately i was gonna I'm say it be just because it's too. fucking awesome right <laughs> yeah like i wrote a spy novel so i love that spy stuff and they're like this misfit spy house they're all kind of derelicts uh but gary oldman plays this real kind of like disgusting old school spy master and and uh, just the the intrigue in that i i really really dig so not really related to the topic here so that's no, but I'm gary really oldman the legend so yeah yeah and then um you know lenny lashley and the gang of one folk punk stuff he used to sing for dark buster uh very soulful very introspective i know he's He's kind of on a journey to sobriety. He used to be a pretty well-known big-time drinker. I heard stories of him drinking his face off with Dwayne Peters from the U.S. Bombs, where I put a record out for the U.S. Bombs. And, and uh, so I've really been into his work lately. And uh, so I recommend Lenny Lashing, The Gang of One. He's his new album, The, the Five Egrets. And it's very creative, soulful. Uh, follow him on Instagram. His stuff is tremendous. And finally, this is the segment I like to call The Chaser. So in The Chaser, we ask the same 10 rapid-fire questions for each guest, and we ask that they keep their answer to 30 seconds or less. Are you ready, Andrew? I'll try. I'm not a brief person, but let's, let's do it. <laughs> uh, this is one that you've already answered kind of, so it should be easier. Do you believe in fate or free will and why? Both. The intersection and the mystery of, the bo of both of them. What is a stronger force in the world, love or hate and why? Equally strong. Both are always going to be at, at conflict with each other. Who are the three most important spiritual and moral guides in your life and why? Uh, I'm going to say Jesus. I'm going to say uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Uh, and uh, I'm going to say John Joseph, believe it or not. What was the most spiritual place for you where you grew up and why? And this doesn't have to be like a literally spiritual place. It could be just a place where you felt a great sense of power. And maybe you didn't realize it at the time in your life. The woods and the mosh pit. What is the most delicious meal you've had in the last month and where was it? Oh, yeah. Uh, last month, uh, this place, Ravenistis, uh in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania, you got to order the dough ahead of time because they run out. It's the best pizza I've tasted uh, outside of being in Italy. As I live close to there, I will take a note of that right now. Um, <laughs> when was the last time you felt lost? Um, 2014, 2015, as I uh, became a corporate executive banker after being a online lender, which is akin from going... Uh, from being like a porn star to a regular actor. <laughs> That's great. I love that. Uh, do you think the universe bends towards order or towards chaos and why? 
I think ultimately bends towards order. I think chaos is usually uh, defeated, uh, but the toggle is often tenuous. What is the most important piece of your childhood that you've held on to and why? And this doesn't have to be like a physical thing. It can be like an emotional tenet also. Punk rock. What is one axiom or quote that centers you and calms you in dark times? You were knitted together in your mother's womb. Just the, the mysteriousness of creation. And in this case, normally I, I say this in regards to words and music, but for you, your writing, to everyone who has ever been touched by your writing, what do you say? Thank you. Thank you for taking a risk and taking risking your time to, uh, to read it. Andrew, you have just engaged in psychic warfare. Thank you so much for joining me today. It truly means the world. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. This is a blast. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to Psychic Warfare. If you like content like this for the rock and metal scene, it would mean a lot to me if you could hit subscribe or follow on your podcast platform of choice. Also, you can follow me at Risk with a K on Twitter, and you can follow the show at Pod on Twitter and Psychic Warfare Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you guys again for all the support, and I will see you in the next episode for another round of Psychic Warfare.